You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Misfit, David, Torso and Pinches, Matt, Hangman Strain, Shelby, Axios, Richard, Hartman, The Sextant, Brian, Doc Lindsay, Hangman Strain, AJ, Roger the Jolly, Artemis Killmeister, Captain Crunch, Rotary Coast, MD, Lost Again, The Navigator, Pitlock, Ward, Workman, Chairboat, Gunsway Sally, Cannon Monkey, Rum Runner, Madame Anita Sparrow, Hefei, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Our story is about to return to England. The royal family has been in the news a lot lately, following the death of Queen Elizabeth II, and I've seen a lot of talk online about the heritage of the royal family itself. So it seems like a good time to turn our eyes to the situation in Europe and in London. In our overall narrative, we've left the Nine Years' War behind. It ended in 1697, and currently, Captain Kidd is sitting in a jail cell in September 1699. But we haven't really talked about the outcome of that war, and it's going to be important, as are some of the internal English politics. They're going to play a major role in what's to come for the pirates. With that in mind, let's begin with the end of the Nine Years' War. This is episode 279, The Pirate's Patch. There was a lot of interesting stuff happening in the Nine Years' War at sea, stuff that's going to impact the pirates. Now, as usual, the French tended to rely quite a bit on privateers. But since none of these guys... Well, I was going to say that none of these guys went off to go raid the Mughal treasure fleet like Henry Every but a few of those French privateers actually went off to raid the Mughal treasure fleet with Henry Every. But most French privateers in the Nine Years' War were just honest naval mercenaries. A few towed the line between privateer and pirate, and we've talked about some of them at length. Take La de Graff. But the most famous French privateer of the era was Jean Bart. Jean Bart was actually Dutch by birth, not unlike his contemporary, Lauro de Graff. 
but he chose to sail for France in the Franco-Dutch War of 1672-78, also the same time that La Roda Graf signed up to sail with France. But Jean Bart chose not to sail with the Brethren of the Coast in the West Indies. Instead, he signed up with a group known as the Dunkirkers. The Dunkirkers were one of the great privateer armadas of the early modern era. They rivaled and very often fought the famous Biscayners out in the Bay of Biscay. The Dunkirkers got their start as an organization during the Dutch Revolt back in the late 1500s. They were fighting against William of Orange, you know, William the Silent, and they were fighting primarily against William of Orange's sea beggars. The Dunkirkers were Flemish, from that region of Europe where modern-day Belgium and the Netherlands and France all kind of meet up. Flanders. If you know anything about the First and Second World Wars, you know about Flanders. Ypres. A Flemish town was famous for the First Battle of Ypres, and then the Second, better known as Passchendaele. Another famous Flemish city, Dunkirk, is famous for Dunkirk. You know, when the British pulled off that amazing escape from mainland Europe, with Nazi guns firing on them at all hours. The Flemish, it's not quite a direct translation to modern-day Belgium, but it's close but the Flemish at the time were very traditional and Catholic. When we talk about the Spanish Netherlands, or later on, after the scope of our story really, it becomes the Austrian Netherlands, they were never fond of things like Protestantism or democratic reforms. In the late 1700s, the Flemish rebelled against the Habsburg Empire, you know, the Holy Roman Empire, because the Holy Roman Empire was getting just a bit too progressive for Flanders. When the French, who were busy doing their own revolution, saw the Flemish revolting against the Habsburgs, they thought, all right, some fellow revolutionists, let's go help. So they went to do so. But when the French arrived, having recently killed their king and outlawed Catholicism, the Flemish didn't want anything to do with them. They fought them too. That's the distinction here. Flanders was Catholic and monarchist. Holland, or the rest of the Netherlands, really, was Protestant and kind of democratic. That's all set up for today's episode, but it really doesn't have much to do with Jean Bart. Jean Bart was not Flemish, he was just regular old Dutch. He spoke Dutch, he sailed in the Dutch Navy, and he won some accolades in the Dutch Navy. But why did he turn his coat and sail for France when the war broke out? He may have had some political or religious leanings that made him more comfortable with a traditional Catholic community like those in Flanders or France, but I think it has more to do with a reason that the Dutch themselves would understand very well. The Netherlands basically invented capitalism, and I think Jean Bart did it for the money. The French were offering a bunch of commissions at very good rates, and they had plenty of wars planned for the future. The Dunkirkers, in particular, were making a ton of money, so Jean Bart thought they might be a good fit. Now, Jean Bart did very well as a Dunkirker privateer, so well, in fact, that King Louis XIV raised him to the nobility. Now, this was obviously an honor, a big ceremony and all that, but really it was a practical move. In French law of the time, officers in the Royal Navy had to be 
French nobleman. Jean Bart was a very good officer. Louis wanted him on his side in his navy, so he joined the nobility. They made Jean Bart a captain immediately, and after just a couple of years in the navy, they raised him to the rank of admiral. It really says something about your skills in commanding ships at sea when a Dutch commoner can be raised into the French nobility just because of how good he is. But it was in the Nine Years' War that Jean Bart really began to shine. Despite the French victories at Beachy Head and Bantry Bay, both battles that Henry Every fought at, the French were losing the war at sea. Because of course they were. France was a powerful country, but the two strongest navies in the world were the English and the Dutch, and they were currently ruled by the same guy who was King Louis's enemy. So the French decided to switch up their naval tactics. They decided to engage in what's known as a guerre de course. That means a war of the chase, or maybe a better translation in this case would be a war of the hunt. That means that they weren't going to be doing big naval battles anymore. No more ship-of-the-line type battles. Instead, they decided to hunt allied shipping. And when you decide to begin a guerre de course, it's handy to have one of the best privateer admirals of all time on your side. And it's worth noting here that this was an important development in our story, our overall story of global piracy in the Golden Age. When the French switched up their tactics, the English had to maneuver to do the same. That means that all of those shipyards that were busy building and modifying and researching how to make ships bigger and better and stronger, more guns, well, they put all that on hold. Instead, they started working on ships that were sleeker, faster, more mobile, more maneuverable. The frigate really came into its own here. Now, this shift in shipbuilding technology wouldn't really make a huge difference in this war. It came too late. But in the next war, the War of the Spanish Succession, it was going to have a major impact, and therefore an impact on our story. Jean Bart took part in the first major naval engagement after this switch in tactics. That's the Battle of Lagos. The Allied forces, and when we talk about the Allies here, we're talking about the English and the Dutch side, that also included the Spanish and the Portuguese and the Holy Roman, everyone but France is the Allies. But the Allies had a large naval convoy, more than 200 sail, that they needed to get from the English Channel into the Mediterranean. That very large convoy was accompanied by a large-ish naval squadron of combined English and Dutch ships. And it shouldn't be too dangerous. After you got past the Bay of Biscay, you were in Spanish and Portuguese waters, so it should be mostly safe, until you enter the Mediterranean, that is. But that was the plan. Once they reached the shores of Portugal, that naval convoy would peel off. They had other business to see to. Then, as they were about to enter the Straits of Gibraltar, another naval convoy would be there to meet them. They would only be on their own for a couple of days. But a couple of days was all that Jean Bart needed. On 17 June 1693, Jean Bart and the Comte de Tourville led a French privateer fleet that appeared on the horizon while the Allied fleet was at anchor in Lagos Bay. As soon as they appeared, the Dutch commander saw them on the horizon, and he ordered his men to weigh anchor and prepare for battle, and they did so. But it was hopeless from the very beginning. 
the French had the advantage in the wind. They had the advantage in firepower, and although they had far fewer ships than those merchant craft, the French ships were battleships, not grain barges. Within minutes, the Allied ships were getting pummeled and sunk. Eventually, though, a small flota of Dutch shipping opened up full sail and jumped right into the fray with the French privateers. Now, this tiny little flota had zero hope of victory, but that wasn't the point here. It was a suicide mission intended to distract the French long enough for the Allies to break free. And it worked. The Dutch admiral and every ship of his still sailing managed to escape while that small flota was getting destroyed. But it was still a smashing defeat for the Allies and a great victory for the French and for Jean Bart in particular. Only about 50 ships in that merchant convoy escaped Lagos Bay. More than 150 had been lost. Later that year, Jean Bart was given a solo command. He was ordered to accompany a convoy of ships that were carrying grain from Denmark, a neutral country, all the way to France. See, the French harvests had been really bad in 1692, and this convoy was filled with grain, mostly from Poland, also a neutral country. But that grain was really France's only hope if they were going to continue the war. However, once it was all loaded up on French ships in Danish harbors, the commander decided not to wait for Jean Bart to arrive. And they had good reason. They had recently heard word that a Dutch flotilla was on their way to attack them. The admiral decided to beat a hasty retreat. But less than a day after leaving that Danish harbor, the entire convoy was captured by a small Dutch force. And it may have seemed like easy meat for the Dutch, and you know, it was. These were mostly unarmed French merchant ships carrying grain. It was similar to what had happened at Lagos Bay. But instead of pummeling them into the ground, the Dutch wanted to carry them back to the Netherlands, or maybe to England, and take their grain, and probably put their sailors and commanders in prison, as prisoners of war. But the Dutch commander was not expecting Jean Bart to appear. The following morning, he showed up with a far superior force to the few ships that the Dutch had, and just demolished them. Two ships were sunk immediately, and then their flagship was captured. The Admiral was himself made a prisoner of war. The rest of the fleet just surrendered. They call this the Battle of Trexel, and it was brief, but it was decisive. Another victory for the French, and for Jean Bart in particular. A couple of years later, Actually, on the third anniversary of his victory at the Battle of Lagos, on 17 June 1696, Jean Bart engaged yet another large squadron of Allied merchant shipping. This time it was at Dogger Bank, about halfway between Britain and Denmark, in the North Sea. Again, the Battle of Dogger Bank was very one-sided. That seems to be a pattern in this guerre de course. Jean Bart pummeled these merchant ships, he sank 50 of them in just a few minutes, and he captured several others. But his victory was cut short. The English admiral Sir John Benbow arrived on the scene with a fleet of his own, and that chased Jean Bart and his French fleet away. Which seems like a good time to switch gears here. Jean Bart is awesome, and he won a lot of naval victories for France, using privateer tactics. 
but I want to focus for the rest of today's episode on Britain. So we're going to let Jean Bart sail away, and we're going to follow John Benbow back to England. The Nine Years' War was really about two questions. First, the Spanish succession. Leopold I, Holy Roman Emperor and scion of the House of Habsburg, planned to keep the Spanish throne in Habsburg hands. And this question was coming up quickly. The Spanish king, Charles II, well, he'd always been ill and infirm, but it was clear he was going to die before too very long. Now, Louis XIV of France had signed a treaty promising not to push his claims on the Spanish throne. That was back when his daughter married the king. However, almost immediately, Louis XIV broke that promise. The first signs of this came during the War of the Reunions, when Louis claimed some Spanish territory because of his daughter's marriage. But now in the Nine Years' War, he was openly saying that, since Charles II did not have any legitimate heirs, one of his heirs, because of the marriage, should be on the throne. Now that question, despite all the fighting, would not be decided in the Nine Years' War, so we're going to leave it there. For now, don't worry, we're going to be talking a lot about the Spanish succession in the near future. The other major issue in this war was the English succession. Now, we should all be fairly conversant in the glorious revolution that brought William and Mary to power by this point. James II, a Stuart king, was a Catholic. He married a Catholic woman, Mary of Modena. And then they had a son, James II's first son that lived anyway. He was named the heir and then raised as a Catholic. The Protestant English Parliament wasn't having any of it, so they turned to King James' eldest daughter, Mary Stuart. Mary had been married to the Dutch Prince of Orange Nassau. This had been a bid to prove the Stuarts' allegiance to Protestantism and to strengthen England's ties with the Netherlands. That bid worked, but it also backfired enormously. Dutch ties did indeed get a lot stronger with England, after a Dutch stadtholder sat on the throne of England. William and Mary reigned as co-monarchs, and while Mary took a back seat to her husband publicly, as was only proper for a woman of the times, she was still deeply involved in politics, and pretty good at it. William was busy fighting the war. It was Mary that had to navigate the treacherous waters of parliamentary factionalism, and her skillful rule in that field actually did a lot to weaken the Jacobite cause, the cause for James II, all around Europe. See, the Jacobites liked to paint Mary as a kind of dull, treacherous sycophant to her husband, too stupid to do anything but what William told her to do. But she proved all of the Jacobites completely wrong, so well that all of those arguments seemed stupid. Instead, the Jacobites shifted gears and painted her as kind of a malicious she-wolf, you know, a witch, pulling the strings. But that never worked out. For the most part, the people of England really loved Queen Mary. She was beautiful, which always helps. And not in some, you know, maybe the painters were really kind to her kind of way. No, Queen Mary was a babe. And the nation saw that. They saw that their queen was beautiful and smart and capable and strong-willed not to mention English and Protestant. She was no Queen Elizabeth I, but not too far off the mark. 
However, like Queen Elizabeth I, Queen Mary failed in what was seen as her most important duty. She never produced an heir. Mary was only ever pregnant one time that we know of, but that pregnancy, shortly after her marriage to William, ended in a very difficult miscarriage. But then, the following year, she grew ill and removed herself from public life for a few months. That was 1679. But then the same thing happened again in 1680 and again in 1681. She may have had some kind of chronic illness, but it's widely speculated that these were other unsuccessful pregnancies. Mary Stuart was probably unable to bear children. Now, it's worth noting here that the Parliament of England knew all about this. They may not have had official word, but it was clear after a certain point that Mary and William weren't going to have kids. When they invited... William and Mary, to take the throne of England in 1688, they knew that, and they took that into account. Because, once they took the throne, that would remove James II and his heir from the line of succession, and it would put Mary's sister Anne in line. Anne, unfortunately, would be as unlucky and childbearing as her sister was. She was pregnant a full 17 times in her life, and not one of those children survived to adulthood. To skip ahead just a bit here, this seems to be a common problem for queens of England. Mary I had no heir. Elizabeth I had no heir. Mary II, the current queen, and then her sister Anne would both have no children. But then, the next queen of England, in the dynasty that would follow, was Queen Victoria. And... Not be glib here, but Queen Victoria seems to have been flexing on her forebears a bit. She had children and grandchildren sitting on half the thrones of Europe before she died. And her line, the dynasty that replaced the Stuarts, still sits the throne of England to this day. While I'm on the topic of dead children, I'd like to take a little tangent here. I was in Beaufort, North Carolina over the weekend. And it was great. They had a pirate festival there. And I got to visit the North Carolina Maritime Museum. They've got a spectacular Blackbeard exhibit. A ton of stuff that was recovered from the Queen Anne's Revenge. Plus, I got to swim in the ocean at the exact spot. Well, almost the exact spot. I couldn't go out that far. But very, very close to where the Queen Anne's Revenge ran aground. I got to walk out of the water where Blackbeard did almost the exact same thing 300 years ago. It was awesome. Plus, Beaufort was a lovely town, just beautiful. What was I talking? Oh, yeah. Dead children. They've got this amazing old cemetery there in Beaufort. A ton of beautiful monuments and history to really dig your teeth into. But I was shocked at the sheer number of tiny little headstones. You know, we all know that infant mortality was high in the old world. But to see it there in stark black and white right in front of you, that's heart-wrenching. There was one headstone for a girl named Hannah who lived for three months. Another, this is actually a somewhat famous grave, was a girl too young to have a name who died at sea. Throw her into the ocean, so instead he bought a barrel of rum 
in which to preserve her body until she could be buried at home. And she was buried in that rum barrel. Today the grave is covered in ornaments and trinkets and even these just a few tiny little shoes, all of them apparently placed by children visiting this unnamed little girl who died at sea. There was one family plot that had maybe like a dozen tiny little graves, but they all shared a single headstone. It just read Our Little Angels because none of them had been old enough to get a name yet. The point is, the Stuart Queens weren't out of the ordinary. Just particularly unlucky, but it's important to remember that for both Queen Mary and Queen Anne, every time they lost one of their children, it was a tragedy every time. The love that the people of England felt for Queen Mary only increased when she died young. Mary was only 32 when she died of smallpox in 1694. But here there was no question that her husband might abdicate. They were a package deal, even after one of them died. But it was a bit nerve-wracking for the Parliament. They knew that Mary and William weren't going to have kids, but now that Mary was gone, there was a possibility he could remarry and produce an heir. But he didn't. William was closing in on 50, after all. Plus, his line of succession was secure in the Netherlands and in England. Anne was the heir. Plus, William was likely gay, but, you know, that never stopped kings from having kids. More to the point, though, King William III was too busy for a new wife. He had a war to win. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change. But it's also a story about people, populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. One of King Louis's major war aims was the restoration of what he saw as the proper Stuart dynasty. The male line of King James II, that is, the dynasty that was friendly to France. During the Nine Years' War, that still meant James II himself. But in the near future, that's going to mean his son, James Francis Edward Stuart. We know him today usually as the Old Pretender. 
That's the sun that sparked the Glorious Revolution, and it's going to be the cause around which all of the early Jacobites will rally. Those are the same Jacobites that a pair of young sailors named Benjamin Hornigold and Edward Teach are going to fight early in their careers. This is all important. It all ties back together. But back here in the Nine Years' War, there was a lot of fighting at sea. You know, there was fighting from Indonesia to Mexico. I still hold that it's the first real world war. But most of the fighting, the really heavy stuff, that happened on land and mostly on the continent. You saw pretty heavy fighting in Savoy. They were fighting down in northern Italy, even in the Pyrenees along the Spanish border with France. But most of the fighting in Europe occurred in the Rhineland. The border between France and all of the other polities that made up the border with France. This was complicated ground, tactically speaking. In the north of the Rhineland you have Flanders. South of that you have the Ardennes. That's a dense woodland. It's difficult terrain for anyone to move through. Then you have a brief window through which armies can advance, but it's filled with rivers, tributaries of the Rhine proper. Then you have the Black Forest, another perhaps even denser woodland, and at the southern end of all of that you have the Alps. This piece of land has troubled and vexed military commanders, military tacticians since, well, since recorded history began in Europe, probably since long before that. All of it makes moving armies very difficult. The only two real places to cross the Rhineland are in Flanders and in that brief window between the Ardennes and the Black Forest. But in those two regions, there are choke points all over the place. At many of these choke points, you're going to find fortresses or even fortress cities. These were highly important. These were very important for all of the wars of the era. But not everywhere. Sometimes there are large hills or maybe a river crossing somewhere that makes a certain position very important, either to defend from invaders or to launch your own invasion. You know, what we're talking about here, this is the Western Front of World War I. But the front lines of the Nine Years' War actually had quite a bit in common with World War I. At those fortresses and fort cities, there were sieges that lasted for months, sometimes even years. Some of those cities had plenty of land in which to grow food, had their own water sources. They could hold out almost indefinitely. But at those other, non-fortified choke points, those hills, those river crossings, that's where armies really clashed, and you begin to see trenches. Now, these were nowhere near as elaborate as the trenches you would find in World War I, but they were useful. Both sides were beginning to have a lot more artillery. It was still pretty primitive compared to what you'd find in the 20th century, or even like in the Napoleonic era, but, you know, a cannon-firing grape shot was still going to tear a guy into pieces. And then you've got that shift into the dragoons, you know, mounted infantry. Their purpose was to take their horses and get in behind enemy lines, at which point they could quickly and quietly unleash a devastating attack on the enemy and then melt away. It reminds me kind of like uh, the airborne divisions in World War II or even the helicopter squads in Vietnam. It was all about quick, quiet, surgical strikes and then disappearing. However, if you can be shot with cannons full of grape shot from the front, and then perhaps 
ambushed from behind by a squadron of dragoons, it's best to find yourself below ground level. So you've got trenches. Now, all of this tactical stuff, you know, ground level, is interesting to me. But the technological advancement is even more important. This is the war in which we first start seeing flintlock muskets and pistols everywhere. They were replacing mostly the old wheel lock musket, and they were much more reliable, much more effective. This was such an important weapon that if you were not producing them, you were losing. And of course, the flintlock is a staple of the coming golden age of piracy. We see a lot of other pirate staples as well here. For example, the compass. Now, there are versions of the compass that go back millennia, but what they call the bearing compass, that type of magnetic compass that I think of when I think of a compass, you know, the kind you played with as a kid, that was hot new technology in the Nine Years' War. They were so effective because they were small. You could fit one in a pocket watch or a pocket watch holder, a cover, you know, the brass part that holds all the watch stuff inside. That would have a compass in it. If you see a general in this era with a chain that looks like a pocket watch, it's almost certainly a compass. And they were everywhere. They were necessary for all kinds of maneuvers. They allowed armies to be much more precise in their actions. It's another thing that if you didn't have it, you were losing. And then, of course, the big one. For our story in particular, but for the war in general, you have the spyglass. Brass, extendable, filled with glass or crystal, and so useful that they were mass-produced and handed out to almost every commander on the field. Not just generals, but unit commanders had them. Even more important, they were handed out to the Navy, even to privateers. If you handed a commission to a privateer, you did so with a spyglass, because without them, you were losing. But then, there's a lot of pretty huge medical advancements as well. And for these, we can thank Queen Mary. See, Queen Mary promoted and funded and founded the Royal Hospital for Seamen in Greenwich. This hospital was founded for sailors returning from the battle at La Hogue in 1692. That was another battle in which Henry Avery fought, but it was a disaster for the English. So many sailors were terribly wounded that you had to set up a kind of a hospital for them. This Greenwich Hospital was the same place from which the Charles II recruited so many of its men, whom Henry Avery would command after the mutiny. But the Greenwich Hospital was on the forefront of a bunch of pirate staples. They developed some technologies that seem simple, but in reality aren't that simple. Take, for example, the eye patch. Now, bandages over damaged eyes go back forever. If you have an eye that's not working or has been blown out, you have a bandage over it. But the eye patch as we know and love it, the pirate eye patch, that little leather triangle wrapped around the head with its own leather cord that was developed at Greenwich Hospital. They were more secure than older versions. They kept light out better if you had an eye that was still there. And they were particularly good at sea. They stayed so tight to your face that seawater was unable to get in. Now, we all know that these were common among pirates. If you're on a ship at sea getting shot at, splinters are flying. Losing an eye is a very real possibility, and these eye patches were what you used. But I would wager we did not all know that these were particularly common among British pirates in the Golden Age 
because of Queen Mary's Hospital for Sailors. And it's worth noting that this particular design, this type of eye patch, had a name. It was called the Pirate's Patch. And that's not just a joke or some offhanded remark that people sometimes used. That's what this type of eye patch, this design, was called in medical textbooks all around the world up until the 1970s. In that same vein, medical advancements used by pirates developed here at this Greenwich Hospital. You've got the peg leg and the hook hand. Now these might seem simple, even obvious, but it's kind of like the match, you know, the matchstick that was actually developed after the lighter. They're much more complicated than they appear at first glance. The peg leg had to be strapped on using a fairly complicated leather harness that went over your shoulders. The hook hand, you know, when I think about a hook hand, I think about holding it like I did in my pirate Halloween costume when I was a child, but, you know, they didn't have hands to hold on. That also required a fairly complicated leather harness that had to be strapped in. Those harnesses and the devices which aided in mobility were both developed at Greenwich Hospital. Now, what do all of these three medical advancements have in common, aside from being super common on board pirate ships? All three allowed sailors to continue sailing after they'd been injured. You know, you might have been in a battle and taken some grape shot to your left side, and in doing so, you lost your left eye. Your left arm and left leg were both so damaged that they had to be amputated. And normally, you'd be out of the fight forever, but... Thanks to these advancements, they could strap an eye patch on you, give you a hook, hand, and a peg leg, and you're back out there at sea fighting the French. This war really gives us the roots of all of the pirate mythology that we think of when we think about pirates. However, while all this is pretty cool, and interesting to me anyway, I don't want to spend much time on the grand strategic moves of the war. In the broadest strokes here, the Rhineland frontier looked kind of like a yin-yang. On the southern end of the line, that patch between the Ardennes and the Black Forest, France had pushed over the border into German-speaking territory. Up north in Flanders, the Allies had pushed west into France proper. There were even a couple of holdout fort cities in those regions that you might be able to visualize as the little dots in the yin-yang. But by 1696, the fighting had really ground both sides down to a fraction of their former strength. Even with, like, Italian mercenaries added to their ranks, neither side had the ability to really keep fighting. So, in that yin-yang position, with a bunch of new territory captured on both sides, they just sort of stopped fighting. They began negotiations for peace. Secretly, at first, down in Italy, but then more publicly— and the treaty that was to follow was actually a series of smaller treaties between France and Spain, or France and England, or the Netherlands, that kind of thing. I don't want to spend much time on the territorial changes that took place thanks to those treaties. You don't need to know that the French returned the fort city of Freiburg to the Duchy of Baden-Württemberg. They did, but it doesn't matter. In the end, very little actually changed hands. The end result of the Nine Years' War is that the borders of Europe returned to the lines stipulated in the 1679 Treaty of Nijmegen. Nothing really happened here. In America, 
No borders changed at all. The only real result is that the Native Americans realized, hey, maybe these white people aren't actually all that friendly. Maybe they're just using us. You know, in Ireland, the Irish just stayed oppressed. All of this fighting, all this death, and nothing really changed. You know, there are a few things to note. For example, Spain finally officially recognized Saint-Domingue and returned Tortuga to the French. That's kind of important to the story of piracy, but that's about it. Beyond that, you know, the Dutch got some really nice trade concessions with France, so that's good, I guess. But the big questions here, what this war had really been all about, the Spanish succession and the English succession. Now, France didn't exactly lose the Nine Years' War, but she just could not keep fighting literally the whole world. So King Louis conceded and officially recognized King William III as King of England. James II, of course, did not, nor did his son, and they would continue fighting, but that's another story. More importantly, King Louis of France failed to secure the Spanish throne for the Bourbon dynasty. But that was a fight he was not ready to concede forever, as we will see in the War of the Spanish Succession. But for now, peace returned to Europe, and William III returned to England. His wife was dead. He had no children. He'd spent barely any time in England, relatively speaking. He'd been so busy on the continent. But he dove into his work. Princess Anne was actually doing a fair bit of work already, politically speaking, dealing with the factional issues between the Whigs and the Tories. But William waded in there and got into it himself, and he found that the faction that most strongly supported him, the Whigs, were in trouble. The Tories, as we have discussed, were making a lot of political hay while the sun was shining. Most of this revolved around a privateer that William himself had supported, apparently turned pirate, named Captain William Kidd. Next time, we're going to bring William Kidd and William III closer together. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who helps to support the show. All of our patrons on Patreon, everybody that has left us ratings or reviews, they really help get the show out there. And everybody that has recommended this show to your friends and family, you all make this possible. Thank you. The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows, I can't recommend highly enough Ben Franklin's World. You can find it at airwavemedia.com. Our theme music, as always, was The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you have not checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, you can check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. There you can get in touch with me or find links to some of our other smaller, newer projects. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening. Shake down
has died Let him live on in legend tonight